edition of our show, Herstory on the Rock, with Katie and Allie. Normally, it would just be Allie and I hanging out, just the two of us, with a couple of cocktails, talking about famous women in history. But sometimes we like to talk to women who are writing about history. We have a special guest here with us today, uh, Fiona Sampson. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Fiona is a poet and author whose work is published in 37 languages, and she's here to talk with us today about her newest book, Two-Way Mirror, The Life of Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, as you can probably tell, I'm British, not um, <laughs> not from your side of the Atlantic. Um, I am called Professor, but actually I'm primarily a poet and a writer and have worked with writing in a million different ways so far. I ran a festival, I've worked with community arts, I'm very interested in translation and editing and do lots of both of those and uh, obviously I wrote poetry as well as writing literary biographies. This is my second lit bio by the way. Um, I wrote a book about Mary Shelley three years ago so I like women in frocks. Ah, yeah. that's great. We love Mary Shelley. We do. I saw that on your <laughs> Wikipedia page and I was like, woo! <laughs> uh, she was a wild character, that one. <laughs> she was. So we made a cocktail today to celebrate your book and it's called Two-Way Mirror. And um, it is, the bottom little bit is black raspberry liqueur. And then I topped it off with rosé champagne and put two blackberries in it to float around. <laughs> so cheers. Fantastic. Cheers. Cheers to you. Ah, I wish I was drinking that. Mm-hmm. I know. <laughs> mm. Light and bubbly and delicious. Oh, I love it. I love it on a nice summer evening afternoon to just have a little bit yep. of champagne with liqueur mm. in it. Yeah, so it is very hot here. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. You ready to dive in? Yeah. Let's yeah, let's dive in. Look. Okay, so... Before we get into everything um, with the characters, let's start with the setting because this is set in a time in history for women that isn't the greatest. So can you tell us a little bit what life would have been like for women in Elizabeth's time? Yes. So Elizabeth is British. So she is born into a much more class-ridden and even less egalitarian society than America would have been at the time. She's born in 1806. She died in 1861. So she's born in the Romantic era. She's born into a time of tremendous change. The landscape is changing, agricultural revolution, industrial revolution, lots of new money, as we say, coming in and changing the old sort of feudal patterns of British society, European society, actually. So the old um, paternalistic relationship between the big country house, the kind of Jane Austen country house, and, you know, even the the priest, the vicarage, being a kind of a patronage of the big house, and then everyone else being basically an agricultural labourer and impoverished and doing a little bit of subsistence farming on common land to keep themselves afloat, all of that is being floated apart by the new fashion for highly technological, as they thought then, farming, and which is encouraging landowners to clear ordinary people off the common land so that they starve, literally, and are sent into the cities where they become fodder for the Industrial Revolution, which is a product of another form of technology and science that's going on at the same time. So it's a very fast-changing world. And the rise of the first sort of global capitalists 
is just starting. This is a, the hotbed of the new, it's not yet Victorianism, but it's, it's the begin, very beginning of the 19th century. And Elizabeth's own father and also her mother's father both fall into this category. They're both, so her mother's father is enormously wealthy, owns kind of like everything, mills, mines, ships for um, international trade and also plantations in Jamaica. And so does her father, her father's money, which is fabulous wealth, as in never sort of seen before in Britain, um, is offshore wealth. It's not in property, it's not in land, but it's dirty money, it's slavery money. Um, And Elizabeth has a really difficult relationship with, as she should, with that all her life. But the result of that is that although Elizabeth is born in Britain, her father wasn't born in Britain. And there is a sense of them as never quite, I mean, certainly not aristocrats, never quite landed gentry enough. So her father throws a lot of money at buying a country house, buying an estate, trying to kind of settle into county life and becoming the sheriff for Herefordshire and so on and has 12 children of whom 11 survive into adulthood, really unusual at that time. So Elizabeth is born into fabulous and absolutely non-representative wealth, but she's also born a girl. She's the firstborn, but she, that, and she's precocious and amazing. She's writing French plays at 11 and Latin plays at nine. I mean, she's just really, really precocious, but she has to kind of uh, find her own way to her own talent. She has to borrow her brother's tutors um, before they're sent. And when her brothers are sent away to private school, that's the end of Elizabeth's education too, because then the tutors disappear. Um, She has to read around her father's library. Of course, her father was very wealthy, so he owns a library because that's what country gentlemen do. Um, But it's incredibly happenstance. She doesn't have that kind of accelerated very deep, very traditional education and grounding in the classics, which men of her generation do. So if you compare the way she develops as a writer compared to the way the guys develop, she is she seems very, very slow. And it's quite frustrating at times watching her progress when you think of people like Keats and Shelley, who aren't that much older, who are writing publishable verse, who are precocious in a different way, are writing their masterpieces sort of from the age of, you know, 18 and so on. Because, of course, they've been writing poetry. They've had an education almost exclusively really in poetry and poetics, because that's what the classics largely are, from the age of like six. Mm -hmm. So, and Elizabeth doesn't have that. So she is born into a very unequal time and she benefits from some of that and she suffers under some of that. Yeah. And she also, she had a lot going on, it seems like when she was young, because she was also very sickly, you know? So you have her, I feel like she had this like real thirst for knowledge, but then like her body is giving way. So did that have a lot of effect on her poetry later in life? Yeah, I think it did. And I think actually that it's a really good um, way to see just how determined she was. I think she was incredibly determined in two ways. One, as you rightly say, she fell really ill, life-threateningly ill when she was 15. And her health never really recovered. Basically, she had COPD. She had, you know, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And she had some kind of lung condition, which eventually killed her. Um, And she would spend months and indeed years at a time, not just confined to her room. I mean, talk about living in lockdown, but confined to her bed. 
And despite this, she kind of forced herself not to be cut off from the literary world. She kind of built bridges. So the two are kind of different aspects of her determination. And I have to say, it really irritates me that in popular culture, you know, the Barrett's of Wimpole Street, she's supposed to be this kind of swooning lady poetess who's kind of really ineffectual. And, you know, there's a strong bullying father and there's a strong young male poet who she marries and runs off with. Actually, that's not true. She was the strong one. She was incredibly determined. She's the one who lived against the grain. The other two were you know, much more easily able to make their mark in life, but also both of them actually evince quite a lot of personal character weakness, whereas she was the determined one. And yeah, it's so often, isn't it, the case that, you know, how people are, people are turned into myth. And the myth is so, is almost like the opposite of who they really were. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting that she's like that because she is dealing with so much, right? She can't vote. She can't really own property. She's the property of her dad and then her husband. Yeah. And, and she has a chronic illness. Where is she getting this drive from? Did you get a sense of where her passion came from? It's really interesting because writing about Mary Shelley, I was really, really aware that, you know, she, she was precocious, as we know. She wrote Frankenstein when she was, you know, a teenager. Um, and really everything that made her what she was was kind of unconscious whereas with Elizabeth Barbrani it's incredibly conscious it's incredibly deliberate I mean where you get the will to be so deliberate I don't know <laughs> but it's it's really explicit and really explicit from when she's very young writing kind of journal entries to herself and little she wrote little mini sort of portrait essays about herself and they're all from the age of sort of six she's saying she wants to be a poet She's determined to be a poet. She's going to be, she's going to be Homer. She's going to be better than Homer. She's going to be the first woman to do it. She's, it, and then she kind of goes and tries to find every way she can to get there, practicing a lot, practicing her, her versification, if you want to call it that, with uh, you know family friends who are mentors, whether or not they act entirely appropriately, and. Um, and, and reading omnivorously and being an autodidact and, you know, piecing her way, finding this little, little door opens and she goes through it. A family friend introduces her to uh, Miss Mitford, who's a popular author, much published, who mentors her and anthologizes her, gets her into print. You know, it's just finding all the, any way she can. And although I don't think she had a kind of, program of I will do this by a certain age she certainly knew exactly what she was aiming for and just aimed for it very pragmatic but also very creatively also morally actually that's a whole other aspect we might want to talk about it's very Victorian of a very 19th century of her yeah. but yes so conscious such a strong will yeah well and I, I also wanted to because you mentioned that she does have this drive and she has kind of this ambition and you also mentioned at one point in the very beginning of the book that like her family called her, I think it was Ba, but you said, no, her name was Elizabeth. And she specifically, I think, tried to like keep her name because we see a lot of women in history mm -hmm. who lose their names because of marriage or it's their father's name or their husband's Such name. Such a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about why her name is important to her? Yeah. Really interesting. Well, there were a number of, th number of things. First, she's She's actually born Elizabeth Barrett Moulton Barrett. 
uh, because of intermarriage in the family. And she, so she calls herself EBB, leaving out the Moulton long before she marries Browning and gets another B in her name. <laughs> and, and she does so because the Moulton name is her father's father who abandoned the family. And I think also she associates him with the slavery. So there's a deliberate, I don't want to be a Moulton. I want to leave that out. Um, and yes, it's extraordinary that I think partly because she publishes her first book so young, she's 14. Um, and actually she's written it when she's 13 and her first book comes out. She doesn't think ever to not put her name on the title page. And it's really unusual. If you think about the famous women at the time, they're the Bronte sisters who write as the Bell brothers or George Eliot, you know, uh, Marianne Evans, or even George Sand, you know, they're writing under male pseudonyms or they are Jane Austen, uh, who at least spares her own blushes by simply saying a lady, or they're Mary Shelley, who's trying to do both by saying, by the author of Frankenstein. And Elizabeth really is the only one of those women, those great women of that era, the first half and the middle of the 19th century, who's come, who's, whose work has lasted, who writes under her own woman's name. And I think that that's, um, she tumbles into it. But I think the family's fabulous wealth, the fact she doesn't need to earn her living from her writing, and then possibly also the fact that, actually rather like the second generation romantics, she escapes from social, some social constraints by going to live in, abroad in Europe. That's not why she goes, but the result is she doesn't have to be respectable, so to speak, in quite the same way. I think these things allow her to keep writing under her own name. But you're absolutely right. I mean, I think she's a good example of someone whose name almost has been lost because she makes the terrible mistake of marrying another writer. So, you know, people write Browning and they mean Robert. Mm -hmm. um, and actually that's quite a practical problem in writing a biography. And actually, of course, it's the same problem with Mary Shelley. If you write Shelley, which is what I would like to write, you hear Percy Bysshe. Mm -hmm. um, so, and with Elizabeth, of course, she's not Elizabeth Browning. She's Elizabeth Barrett Browning. She always keeps the Barrett. Um, and I think that that was very wise of her. She is somehow putting the brakes on, being subsumed under the Browning brand, even though I have to say reception of her has been completely subsumed under the Browning brand. I mean, it's very hard to get a male literary critic at the moment to acknowledge, or in fact, since the 1970s, to acknowledge the huge effect she had on 19th century literature. I mean, you know, Robert Browning was six years younger than her and was also her literary junior. He, after she died, he did amazing things with her new style of poetics, but it was she who developed them. She developed this modern way of writing, which is more storytelling, which is more uh, moralistic, which is, you know, more informal in its rhyme schemes and its meter and its vocabulary. She is the one who, with Tennyson, is, is developing this new Victorian poetics. And Robert, who's a little bit younger, well, just six years, but, you know, comes along and marries her and then copies her. But, of course, the narrative is that, you know, she has to be excised. And I always think, I mean, I'm sure you think this too, I mean, I always think that the old question, if... If women's writing is so inferior, so evidently inferior, why do such strenuous efforts have to be made to make sure it disappears? Mm 
Right. You know, why is there such strong policing of it? Yeah, she's such an interesting person. And you mentioned so many facets in answering that question. Like she's a revolutionary when she moves abroad. She's an abolitionist. She's a feminist. She marries mm-hmm. somebody her dad doesn't really like. What is her moral ethical code? And what is this thing between her and her dad? Yeah, that's a really good question. Her dad, I think, I think her dad was a very idealistic possibly rather weak man who couldn't quite take responsibility, but who had or felt he had enormous responsibilities apart from anything else. I mean, not that I have a lot of sympathy with, you know, the responsibilities that come with enormous wealth, because I think, you know, problems one would like to have. (laughs) But um, I, I think that he was quite religious and he understood rightly that he had a responsibility to all the family members and all the people he employed. And, I think that he couldn't really quite cope with that. He was sort of destroyed by a contested will, um, which meant that he lost a lot of his money. He was still very, very wealthy, but he wasn't fabulously wealthy anymore. Mm -hmm. And that sort of existential sense of freedom and a young man's freedom, because he married and became a father very, very young before he'd reached his majority, before he's 21, um, with which he did the first things in life, I think fell away and, particularly after Elizabeth's mother died, so he was a widower, I think there was a sense of it's all gone wrong and he kind of couldn't quite get on top of it and and the changes that resulted. And as a result, I think he became very clingy to what he did have, which was his 11 kids. I mean, he didn't like Robert Browning and he wouldn't have wanted Elizabeth to marry Robert Browning um, because Robert Browning didn't have very much money and was younger and so on. But... Or he didn't want any of his children to marry. All three of Edward Barrett, Walter Barrett's children who married during his lifetime, and they all sort of reached 40 before they did so, he cut off and would have nothing to do with. So it wasn't just Elizabeth being perhaps his favourite, nor Elizabeth's choice of another poet. It was actually, he just wanted to keep them close. He was fiercely protective, fiercely protective of Elizabeth's illness, of one of the sons who had a stammer. You know, he wanted the best for his kids, adult kids, very adult kids. But he couldn't understand that what they needed was their own lives. Um, And I think that Elizabeth became very religious because that was a bond with her father, who was a very, she was very close to her father um, until she began to see that perhaps some of her closeness, his closeness to her was selfish as well, self-interested at least, as well as on her behalf. Um, and I think it's not surprising she was very religious, partly because that was the tenor of the time. You know, the 19th century seeing um, a sudden explosion in um, resistance to the established church, the Church of England, which is the parish churches that dot the country, um, and the rise of... Um, what we call low church, congregational church, Methodism and so on, which is much more evangelical, um, Baptists. I mean, there were all these great, you know, movements of revivalism. Um, and, you know, it's quite fundamental. It's quite, um, quite heavily invested Christianity, whereas Anglicanism might be seen as more kind of cultural Christianity. That's not entirely true to Anglicanism, but, you know, as a shorthand. Um, Plus, of course, she's living with a potentially fatal illness. So she can't ever kind of 
put off till tomorrow kind of those big existential questions about life and death and the result of both those things is that she is very very moralistic she sees poetry as instrumental to getting across moral and philosophical ideas and that's why she uses it to make the argument against child labor she makes an argument against um enslavement she makes arguments against rape which was actually also very very unusual at her time in her time not only where only in the the great poem against um you know enslavement the runaway slave at pilgrim's point which is also about rape but also um in aurora lee which is arguably her masterpiece which is a verse novel about becoming a woman poet um where there's a kind of subplot where there's a girl teenager who's sold into prostitution by her impoverished agricultural laborer mother um and elizabeth that browning very very unusually for her time doesn't condemn this character but sees her as a victim and this character is later on trafficked again to paris and has a child as a result of this enforced prostitution and the narrative is all about how important it is that marion as she's called She's called Marion Earl, and she does. Um, but she that she should be rescued, um, supported, absolutely not condemned. The condemnation is all directed at the men who've used her, and that she should bring up her child, and there's nothing wrong with this mm-hmm. outcome for her child. That seems to us common sense, but at the time would have been beyond radical. Um, so she uses her poetry to kind of get these ideas across yeah. also they're simply what she has to say I don't think she's always been didactic they're simply what is in her mind yeah well and I think that's what makes her poetry so interesting is people have an idea of poetry of like it's all about love and nature yeah. and birds exactly. and you know and she's actually using it to make a really sincere political point and hmm. you are a poet so do you think that you being a poet and really being able to dive into what she's saying had a big impact on your biography of her? Because I imagine if a non-poet wrote it, maybe some things might get lost. Well, that's um, a a nice thought. Thank you. Um, (laughs) I think that I'm a very different kind of poet from her, but I think that two things I bring to trying to write a biography of Elizabeth Browning. One is that I understand that i understand that development is necessary understand the real importance of questions of apprenticeship i mean nowadays there are creative writing programs in you know all universities and so on and of course there weren't in 19th century britain but there also weren't in late 20th century britain when i was a student i mean there were in north america but there weren't in britain just as there aren't in continental europe yet very much and and so I understand and recognize that sense of the writers are men. I mean, you aren't allowed to be a writer. The, the, just the default pronoun is male. And you and to imagine yourself into the authority of occupying the white space of the page is inordinately difficult if that isn't always already, you know, if there aren't role models, but also if it isn't customary. And a lot of, you know, I'm, 
I'm not actually inordinately old, although I'm older than you guys, but I'm old enough to, or I come from an old fashioned enough society that, you know, I have been like, you know, only the second woman editor of Poetry Review, which is our, our big national um, poetry institution after Muriel Spark in the 1940s, you know, there's only the two of us in 110 years. Um, there has been someone since. I am often the first or the only woman in the room still. And I don't think that unless you know what it's like to internalize that yes, but-ness, mm. you can quite really read her life. And I also think that perhaps you know, if you are a poet, you do more close read the poetics and see what's going on. Because obviously one of the joys of poetry is that, you know, there's a surface and then there's a lot of things going on simultaneously. You know, it, it's kind of choral, you know, it's like there are lots of things going on at the same time in a, in a, in a line or a word of poetry. And maybe I'm able to pick up on the nuance of that at the same time as, you know, writing her life, uh, which I think, I mean, I was really shocked when I came. I knew I wanted to do Elizabeth Bat Browning and I was but I was really astonished to find when I kind of proposed it, you know, that there wasn't a biography in print and that there hadn't been a biography since the mid nineteen eighties, which is is a really it's a really nice biography actually by Margaret Forster, but um it's before an awful lot of the correspondence and, and indeed her diary have been has been archived. You know, like the whole of her maturity, all the correspondence hadn't yet been archived. And so it's omitted from, you know, all the primary material isn't there yet for, for, for the last biography. So there was this enormous lacuna, just, she's been taught. She's been on the curriculum still. And I have to say that her sonnet, you know, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways is technically Britain's favorite poem, but, and it's certainly, you know, one of the most well-known poems here. And, you know, it's always being, you know, parodied in newspaper headlines and so on. But, but actually the story of her life, unlike, you know, Robert Browning or indeed, you know, the romantic poets of whom there've been many, many biographies, almost kind of not quite one a year, but, you know, many, all of them very, almost and very rich and interesting but you know there's a really thick hummus of biographical hummus there not for Elizabeth I, and I was astonished mm. and uh and I kind of felt felt for that I felt um, anger would be too strong a word and sadness would be not quite the right word but I really felt a kind of frustration that our culture is still like that mm. and how did your personal relationship to Elizabeth changed while you were writing the book mm. because you're saying like you know we we have these new archives now there's this biography that came out in the 80s we've got all this information but how did you feel about her as you were writing it was really it's a, it's a really interesting question because it was a really it was I was surprised it was a really surprising experience I mean there is and I think this is relevant because, of course, it's relevant to her because hers was a writing life too. I started writing the book while Mary, my Mary Shelley biography was, you know, doing rather nicely. And I was doing an awful lot of lectures and talks and essays and just going to loads of festivals. And I was talking all the time about Mary Shelley. And I was really, I really fell in love with Mary Shelley. Um, 
which I hadn't expected to because I didn't pitch for Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley was a commission that came to me because I'd done a, um, an edition of Percy Bysshe Shelley, ironically. <laughs> um, but it came to me and it, I thought it was a wonderful gift and I would never have had the hubris to suggest for my first biography, Mary Shelley, but great came to me and I loved doing it. And I really fell in love with Mary Shelley because I just really loved her slightly nerdy, emotional, literal mindedness, her straightforwardness and how she, I really felt for her the way she was kind of adrift among all these muses who were always floating around, flirting with Percy and, and indeed sometimes sleeping with him and so on. And, and I just felt that she had a kind of, not Asperger's, but a very, yeah, a very straightforward having fallen in love with him, loyalty. I just kind of, I really identified with her. I mean, I'm not saying with her talent. And, and so it was quite hard to hear Elizabeth past Mary. Mm. And, and it's also very odd because they're only born nine years apart, but they're so culturally different, not only in terms of class and so on, but because, you know, Mary is an absolute echt second generation romantic. And, then Elizabeth is an absolute echt young Victorian. They are both so at the cutting edge of their respective zeitgeists. And their zeitgeists, though only nine years apart, are actually much more than that. Partly, of course, because Mary was precocious, so hers came early, and Elizabeth was not precocious professionally, so her actual maturity came late, you know, came really in her late 30s. So, in fact, there was quite a gap. But gradually, I just became more and more um I just had more and more admiration for her guts and her kind of grit and her determination and I felt like she was a really good lesson to me but I also think a really useful lesson in well the usefulness of being determined of not being you know told no to and although there are things about Elizabeth circumstance I mean including her fabulous wealth and obviously massively including that money came from slavery that I find difficult she herself I think was a really good person uh, in a different way from Mary Shelley uh, not so much this kind of emotional straightforwardness but more a really conscious a really a really strong desire to lead a good moral ethical life. I mean, because we, I also haven't mentioned and I should have done that she, you know, she was very pro Italian independence and Italian republicanism and really wrote two books of poetry. I mean, Casa Guidi windows and then poems before Congress, which are arguing passionately for Risorgimento and which helped change public opinion in Britain, which is why she had, uh, sort of heroine's funeral in Florence when she died because she was seen as a hero of the Risorgimento. So I I felt that she was very questioning, that she was very... She didn't allow herself to rest on her laurels. She was always searching. And I think that she exemplified the best parts of Victorianism. And I feel quite strongly that it's quite easy for us now in 2021 to be armchair critics and kind of be anachronistic and say oh well you know her she inherited dirty money and therefore you know we can have nothing to do with her and I think that we can have something to do with her 
by looking at how she addressed that problem. Mm-hmm. And she did, you know, she addressed it head on. She didn't want to, she didn't want to take that money on with her into her adult life when her married life, when she left, but she had to. And we have to remember that like everybody in her world, if she had walked away from that family money, because as you pointed out, she couldn't earn her living. She didn't, she would have been, it would have been literally suicidal because she would have been literally on the streets mm-hmm. or she could have done would have, would have been prostitution. I mean, she couldn't have survived. And you know, there's no welfare state. There's no nothing. Um, she would have been destitute. Mm-hmm. And I think that although enslavement isn't, beyond an abomination and is a stain on both our societies. I think that we have to ask ourselves whether if, you know, we have to think about the situated individual. And the other thing we have to remember about Elizabeth too, that is really interesting is that she thought she was what we call in Britain, BAME. So she thought that her ancestry included people who were black who'd been enslaved. And that was quite, I don't, unfortunately I couldn't find that, that was the case, mm-hmm. but certainly she had first cousins who um, who were the result of her uncles and her brothers having relationships with enslaved women, which were technically voluntary, but of course, how can you know in that kind of power relation? And she has, and given the kind of way that sexual violence surrounds generations of enslavement, it is perfectly reasonable. It was perfectly reasonable of her to believe that she um, was of mixed heritage. And so she did. She believed that about herself. And I think that so she's situated in a really complex place where, like, uh, for example, her grandmother's companion who came over to Britain with Elizabeth's father. uh, So Elizabeth's father, her aunt her grandmother and the grandmother's companion all came over to Britain and the grandmother's companion was black and she, but she herself owned slaves. So that really, and the alternative would have been to kind of say, okay, well, I will go back into the slaves quarters. If she hadn't been complicit, people were kind of forced into complicity. And I think that that is incredibly complex. I don't mean, oh, and it's all right in any way. But I think that I think that we have to be careful before we say that any individual who is, you know, there's intersectionality and anybody in any individual other than ourselves who is finds themselves in such a place. I think we have to be careful what sacrifices we ask them to make. Yeah, absolutely. And I think all those reasons are just so exemplify why this book that you've written about this person who existed obviously way before us. <laughs> yes. It's such a great read for people in 2021. It brings up all these questions that we're grappling with today. And yeah. I, I love it. And I can't wait for our listeners to go out and buy your book and read it and start more dialogue about these people from the past. Because as you said, she was talking about this in the 1800s. So, you know, we like to be like, oh no, it was in the past. Like, you know, people didn't know it was wrong and she knew and she was talking yeah. about it. And yeah. I just love that your book brings to light these questions 
Um, so we just had to ask, where can people find you and your book and all of your writing and all of these languages? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I think on Amazon and all good bookshops, um, a two-way mirror is published in the States by W.W. W. Norton on, I think it's the 17th of August. So I mean on their website or order it through a bookshop or Amazon or hopefully libraries too. Um, in the UK, it's already out. It's published by profile. Um, yeah, I'm doing a talk about it for the Smithsonian. Um, uh, I have a website, probably not terribly up to date, but it's <laughs> .co.uk. but you know, all my books are on Amazon. Um, I have a book at the minute over here, which is shortlisted for the Wales book of the year. And that's poetry. And that's called Come Down. And that's um, published by Corsair, who are part of Hachette. So again, you can just order it. Yeah. Wow, that's so amazing. Well, we hope that everybody in, this, in the UK picks this up and then everybody in the States picks it up when it comes out in August. We're really excited for it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was a blast to talk to you. And we can't wait to see the next uh, poetry or otherwise biography that you write. <laughs> Thanks so much, Ali. Thanks so much, Katie. It's great to talk. <laughs>